Welcome to the Magnificat Podcast. We are an international ministry to Catholic women. Throughout this series, we will pray together, share insights, and hear amazing testimonies, typically from women of faith who have been touched by the power of the Lord in their lives. This is a decidedly Catholic podcast, and in this series, you will hopefully learn more about the Catholic faith, God, the Blessed Mother, and much more. Thanks so much for joining us. Now let's listen to a great program. What a privilege to be able to introduce to you today, Jan Tate. Jan has worked with her husband Lloyd in the Ministry of Marriage Preparation for over a year. They recently published their own in-home marriage preparation manual in conjunction with the Diocese of Baton Rouge. For 12 years, Jan worked with mother-daughter and father-son programs sponsored by the Family Life Apostolate for the Archdiocese of New Orleans. She is a trained spiritual director and now serves on the staff of the Archdiocese Spirituality Center. She has preached numerous retreats for men, women, and couples, as well as days of reflection. Jan is also a trained facilitator for at-home retreat program. She serves on the board of Will Woods Community and remains on the circuit of speakers for the Supper and Substance Program for Married Couples. Jan and Lloyd, married in 1972, have five children and ten grandchildren. She is a native New Orleanian and graduated from Loyola University with a degree in communications. Jan's favorite scripture quote is from Hosea 11, verse 4. I drew them with human cords, with bands of love. I fostered them like one who raises an infant to his cheeks. Yet, though I stooped to feed my child, they did not know that I was their healer. Again, it's my privilege to introduce Jan Tate. Thank you, Kathleen. I want to just begin by um, by saying to all of you, as you listen to me now share my testimony, that you know what I'm going to share with you is my story. Each of us has a story, and they're all different. Every one of us, and, and I guess that's been heightened in me since Katrina. Because every time I see someone or someone calls and we reconnect, what is the first thing we want to do but tell the story? Where were you? How did you evacuate? Where have you been since then? Well, in a very real way, these breakfasts that Magnificat puts on is an opportunity for those of us who are invited to speak simply to share our story. It's not because we're any better than you Each one of you beautiful women could come up here and share your story about how God's been present, and we'd all get something wonderful out of that. So it's never about comparing ourselves to the speaker. We just really have to remember that God is in each of us. And you know that prayer that was from Psalm 139, the psalmist says, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, ladies, did you all get up this morning and praise God because you're fearfully and wonderfully made? Praise God that I am fearfully and wonderfully made just as I am. I don't have to compare myself to anybody. I am 
I am perfect just like I am because this is how God desired me to be. So as you listen to my story, uh, remember that it's my story. It's simply the way that God has manifested his presence in my life. I kind of chuckle when I'm introduced as a speaker and they read this biography. It makes me sound like, you know, I'm, I'm important or something. And really, I'm a very ordinary woman who is loved by a very extraordinary God. And as I tell my story, that's what I want you to focus on. Not on the story of Jan Tate, but on the extraordinary God who created me and who loves me. My husband Lloyd and I have been married for almost 34 years now, and we have done uh, marriage preparation as our main ministry in the Catholic Church for 29 of those 34 years. And I never miss a chance to say this because I have three priests in the audience. It was a priest who invited us when we were married only four and a half years to come and help him to prepare engaged couples. And so I say to you, our dear priest, our dear wonderful priest, don't ever pass up the opportunity to extend an invitation to your lay people to work with you in the ministry of the church. These 29 years of marriage prep have been the greatest blessing that Lloyd and I could have ever received, and it would not have been possible had a priest not been courageous enough to say, come and help me. My parents uh, were pioneer couples who began marriage preparation in the Archdiocese of New Orleans. And so when they they did marriage preparation. They had a priest who spoke one night, a doctor who spoke one night, and then a married couple who spoke on the practicalities. In our time of doing marriage preparation, we have used many different formats. But one of the things that we've noticed over our past, about the past 10 years is a focus on a topic that we never spoke about and that my parents certainly never spoke about, and that was the influence of our families of origin on our marriages. And I would broaden that to say that the family that we grew up in has had a tremendous, far-reaching impact on who we are as individuals and how we see ourselves as men and women, what we think of ourselves, and how we deal with most of life has been influenced directly by our families of origin. Our marriages have certainly been influenced by those families of origin because we come as husband and wife from two entirely different families of origin. And so our married life is spent trying to blend those differing backgrounds, belief systems, thought processes, traditions into a a unity that will be harmonious in the sight of the Lord and, um, and give grace to the world in which we live. So that's where I'd like to start with you, is my family of origin, because that's who the Lord picked out for me to be part of, and it is why Jan Tate, in large measure, is who I am, because God said I would be born on July the 16th, 1950, which is a feast of Our Lady of Mount Carmel, and I will forever praise his name that I was born on a Marian feast. I hope to die on a Marian feast. (laughs) Anyway, my parents were um, childhood sweethearts and married right after college. They loved each other, were very passionate about their Catholic faith, 
their first child. My oldest sister was born, and then I was born 15 months later. I have three younger brothers. My mother endured many miscarriages in between those three younger brothers. And then my mother um, died at the young age of 59 from cancer. Uh, that was 20 years ago, and she, it was a tremendous loss for all of us. My mother was a, a tremendous influence in my life. I guess the gifts, if I could tell you the giftedness of my parents' marriage and how it's influenced me. My mother and father both had a very passionate love for the Eucharist and for the Rosary. My dad started taking me and my sister to daily Mass when I was very young, maybe second or third grade, and it's a practice that I've continued to this day. My mother, in the last several years of her life, was very infirm, and uh, she struggled terribly with rheumatoid arthritis right before she got the cancer and suffered with that for many years, had many parts of her replaced, hips, knees, thumbs. And um, I, I would watch my mom at daily Mass day after day, no matter how much pain she was in, hobble up to that front of the church to receive our Lord in the Eucharist. She had such a love, and she communicated that to me. We had the family rosary when I was a a child. Now, I'm not going to tell you that we always liked saying the family rosary because they made us kneel down on this hard floor. And, you know, my brothers, of course, were all, you know, giggling and misbehaving. And anyway, but, but Regardless of whether or not I appreciated it then, I know it was part of forming who I am and gave me a tremendous love for our Blessed Lady. The other thing that my parents were totally passionate about, besides the Eucharist and the Rosary, was each other and the great sacrament of matrimony that united them. They had a tremendous, vibrant love for one another, and they modeled for me not only a love for each other, in the sacrament of matrimony, but that belief in the, their sacramental call to matrimony and to baptism ushered them out into ministry to the church. And so it, it became for me what I absorbed. You know, my, my husband always says, we observe our family of origin and we absorb the messages that they teach us. What I observed was a great love between my mom and dad and for the for the Catholic Church. And what I absorbed was this attitude to service, always a call outward to service. Um, so those are some of the things that I'm just tremendously grateful for. Now, given that, and that all sounds wonderful, and it was great gifts, there was obviously, um, it was not a perfect family because there are no perfect families, Right. I guess the two things that I would share with you that have been problematic or struggles for me and how they bore out the the struggling and the cross that's been part of my spiritual journey, um, because of some uh, baggage that my mother carried into her marriage, into her life from her young life, some real traumatic things that happened to her, my mother had a tremendous sense of over-responsibility that she felt overly responsible for the lives of of other people, especially her children. And I can remember her saying often, Janelle, I have to answer to Almighty God for the way my children turn out. And I thought, oh, God, you know, (laughs) I hope I I do this right. You see, now, again, my mother was saying it out of her soul in one way and meaning it 
in one way. But you see, my interpretation, and remember, we all see and perceive and hear things and take it into ourselves and our personalities, and that's how we absorb things. I absorbed it exactly like I just reacted to it. You know, I hope I do this right. And so that coupled with my father, whose constant message to us was, autograph your work with excellence. <laughs> I took those two messages inside of me and became um, really a person that was terribly focused on doing things right and doing things perfect. And I somehow internalized the message that if I didn't do it right or I didn't do it perfect, that something was wrong with me. Okay, not something was wrong with the performance, but that something was wrong with me. And that somehow, if I didn't do it right or perfectly, that I was not going to be loved. Now, is that a spiritual struggle or not? Because how's gonna God, how am I going to believe in this tremendous God who loves me unconditionally if I can't get it right, if I can't do it perfectly? Because I, how's God going to love me? I'm not right or perfect, right? And I think so many of us struggle with that. And the fact of the matter is, it's not, it's not a problem God has, because he can love me imperfect as I am. It's a problem with me loving me imperfect as I am. So for me, that was one has been part of my spiritual journey and spiritual struggle, to accept the unconditional love of God as a free, gratuitous gift. And it's not that I have to clean myself up. I have to allow God to clean me up. I have to allow God to be what he is, and that is my Savior, my refuge, my tower of strength, as we sang this morning, which is one of my favorite songs. Thank you for singing that. The second area that I know has been problematic for me and my family of origin concerns uh, what I perceived, again, my perception, my family, in, uh, in terms of my relationship with my older sister, we were two girls, 15 months apart, both very gifted, um, bright young girls who succeeded well in school and, and that kind of thing, uh, pushed real hard. But, you know, as any siblings, we had our share of sibling rivalry. I think for some reason, my mother was never really able to help us, to allow us to express our anger and to heal the conflicts that arise in sibling rivalry, and she would tend to suppress it. And because that um, got suppressed, that anger, that frustration, that sense of competition between us, I think it, it got buried inside of me, and, and two things happened. It taught me some very pass, passive-aggressive uh, anger management ways where you know I just had it down inside of me, and I didn't overtly do things to tick off my sister, but I'd, I'd sure manage ways to do that or to blame her for, you know, whatever, or other people, friends. And the second thing it did for me, uh, my, my, uh, my sister was the first, and she was the first child. My dad has two other brothers. And the first child in each of those three boys' families um, were my paternal grandparents' favorites, okay, the first child syndrome. Well, that makes the second child feel like, you know, chopped liver or something, you know? So it instilled in me a sense of competition. Like now I've got to compete 
for the love that I want in my life. Now, that pattern was set very early on in my life. It wasn't a conscious thing. It wasn't something that my, my parents consciously did to us. It wasn't something I consciously said, well, you know, I realize whenever I'm in a relationship that I'll be in competition. No, no it's, it's, see, it's how I absorbed what was going on outside of me. And the pattern that set up for me was, and that I took into my marriage that has been part of the struggle for, um, in our adjustment to marriage was when I got married, it was no longer my sister who I was in competition with for the love that I wanted, but then it was my husband's professional life. See, I always had to be in competition because I was, it was a win, 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 lose situation with me. And to this day, even after all the healing the Lord has done in me, my, it's like my second skin. My first reaction to most situations in my life is a competition thing. And I'll give you a, a, a great story I, I'll tell on myself. I, um, as Kathleen shared with you, I was trained in the Ministry of Spiritual Direction. I took a two-year uh, internship. And I was the only laywoman in this intern class. I was with three priests, uh, a Jesuit brother, three religious sisters, a man who was a secular order, Franciscan, and they all had lots of um, letters behind their names, PhD, MSW, STL, you know, lots of, and I only had MRS at the beginning, and that's all I had. <laughs> so... I'm in this two-year internship with the heavyweights, okay? Well, you know, I did very well in the internship. God blessed me. I have been blessed with great gifts for spiritual direction, and I do have a good mind, and I knew I could do the study part and everything. Anyway, but down inside of me, there was that sense of, okay, I got to do this real right, guys. And... um the priest who was at that time rector of Notre Dame Seminary, who's now Bishop uh, of um, Austin, Bishop Greg Amon, he came to our gathering at the end of our uh, internship. And I'm telling you, ladies, without even thinking, without even thinking, I walked up to Bishop Greg, who I've known since when he was a very young priest. Um, I said, Bishop Greg, Guess who was valedictorian of the internship? <laughs> and I thought, now where did that come from? See? It, I mean, it was immediate. Like, I had to prove that I was on top, that I was the best, that I did it right, that I did it perfect. I had perfect attendance. Nobody else did. Who cares? You know what I'm saying? But you see, for me, that's that part of me. That's that pattern. That's that push that says, I've got to do it right, I've got to do it perfect, got to be the best, got to be on top. Okay, well, you cannot, you know, it doesn't take you long to recognize that in a marriage relationship, that doesn't work real well, does it? Because we take that sense of competition into our marriage, and it can be very destructive. And so the course of our married lives, Lloyd and I have had to work, and I have had to repent often, and the Lord has had to give me tremendous grace to help me to get over um, or to work through that sense of c competitiveness, that sense of having to be on top or to prove that I'm right or to prove myself. 
And the Lord, again, is so faithful. He is so faithful because God is constantly telling me, you're enough just like you are. Enough just like you are. And I'm going to, again, just tell you another lesson that I received post-Katrina here. You know, I had this great life before Katrina. I had, I had an office at Notre Dame Seminary. I did a great deal of spiritual, spiritual direction. I was giving retreats, and Lloyd and I were doing a tremendous amount of marriage preparation. We had written this manual. We were doing trainings for the manual. I have all these wonderful children and grandchildren around the country, and I'm visiting all them. So I had this great life of doing, doing. Then Katrina hits, and all that's stripped away. And for weeks, I struggled then with that sense of going before the Lord and saying, once again, you're trying to teach me, it's not what I do, it's who I am. God is not more pleased with me when I'm doing than he is when I am just being. God won't love me more after I give this talk than he loved me before I gave this talk. He won't love me more when I get back to my ministry of spiritual direction than he loves me right now when I've been in an apartment in Houston, Texas, and nobody knows me there and nobody needs me there. I am loved because of who I am. And that was a a real um, insight I got again into the Martha Mary gospel story. You know, I, I think on a deep level, the problem with Martha was that she, she didn't believe she was enough for God just like she was. She had to do for God. Whereas Mary sat at Jesus' feet and said to Jesus, in effect, you, Jesus, are enough for me. And she allowed herself to hear the transforming message of Jesus saying to her, and Mary, you are enough for me. And I think we as women particularly need to sit before the Lord and let him tell us that over and over. You're enough for me, just like you are, regardless of what you produce or don't produce, regardless of how you look or what dress size you are, or you are enough. You're enough. You're enough. And I think that's been a a real grace of this past uh, 10 weeks post-Katrina, that the Lord again giving me that sense that um, I'm enough for him. I'm enough. Even if I'm not producing, I'm enough. Now I've gotten totally off of my notes, so I'm not exactly sure where I am here, but I'll just tell you a little bit more about my life, and maybe um, the Lord will catch me back up in my notes or something. Um, I was educated in uh, a Catholic grammar school by the Marianites of the Holy Cross, um, a beautiful order of sisters. And I bring that up because um, there was one sister who took me aside when I was in the seventh grade, and for whatever reason, she decided that she was going to train me to do public speaking. And I will be forever grateful to her that she did that. I don't know what she identified in me, but I have used the, the that talent and the help that she gave me developing that uh, more than anything. I guess as I reflect on my life, the the scripture passage that most embodies how I sense 
and what I feel about my life is from Hosea chapter 11, verses one through four, verses three and four. And it says, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I drew them with human cords, with bands of love. The story of my life is that the Lord has drawn me to himself with human cords. At every turn, he has placed someone in my life to draw me closer to him. In my young life, it was, in many ways, the Marianites of the Holy Cross. I attended an all-girls Catholic high school. Most of our high schools in New Orleans are, co- are, are, are separated by sex. We're all-girls Catholic or all-boys Catholic. Um, and uh, the invitation was issued when I was a freshman by, was on the bulletin board one day by a Jesuit priest over at Jesuit High School inviting the uh, students at Chappelle, the Catholic girls' school, to come over and uh, have joint meetings with the boys at Jesuit for the Sodality, which is a, a club of Mary, right? We were honoring Mary. Well, I wish I could tell you that I went to honor Mary. I went because it was boys. <laughs> so, I'm no fool. I knew there wasn't much prospect at the girls' school, so I might as well go and meet up with the guys. But, you know, the Lord used even that mixed uh, motive of mine, and he introduced me to this wonderful Jesuit priest whose name is Father Kenneth Buddendorf. Um, it was Father Ken who... Uh, became, for me, one of the primary bands of love that drew me to the Lord. Father Bud and I, uh, he was a newly ordained priest at the time. Father Bud and I became fast friends. It was like one of those uh, relationships. You know how you just meet a person and you know you're on the same page? You know you just just click with them? It was like that for me and Father Bud. And he became, for me, a tremendous mentor. Father Bud, as I have said so often, was a person in my life that the Lord used because Bud always believed I could do things that I didn't think I could do. And he challenged me to do, to do those things, to step out in faith. And so Father Bud took me on all kinds of trips with him. And he had me speaking along with him when I was in high school. And I look back on that and like, what did I know then? You know, but he, he would train me and talk to me. It was he who first introduced me to the whole concept of the mystical body of Christ. And he taught me and he took me under his wing. And, um, in great part, it was he who, um, I would ask all the questions I didn't want to ask my parents. And that wouldn't happen today because parents are so skittish and we have to be so afraid and so careful. And priests have had to become so, you know, careful and put so many boundaries around. But, you know, I was graced because Father Bud was a, like my dad always described him, he was a priest's priest. He was so in love with his priesthood and was such a trustworthy man that my parents never feared my being with him or traveling with him. And um, I look back on those years in high school, and then Father Bud was the campus minister at Loyola University, where both my husband and I went to college. And 
And so it was a natural then progression that he continued his formation of me. And it was also he who introduced me to Jesuit spirituality and the Ignatian exercises. And I look back at that one invitation on that bulletin board, inviting me to take part in something as a 15-year-old that forever changed the course of my life. Again, it, it's not about me, okay? It's about the Lord issuing an invitation, and I happen to see it and respond, not for the best of motives, but anyway, I went, and, and the Lord graced that. I met Lloyd, uh, my husband, when I was a senior in high school. We, uh, there was two, were two women who had been uh, gotten the idea to put on a, a citywide day for youth, for young people, and they reached out to the area high schools and colleges to uh, send them some Catholic leaders, youth leaders. To, uh, and I was invited to go from my high school, and my husband happened to be a very good friend of one of these women. And so we put on this citywide day for youth. Now, I never uh, remember meeting Lloyd working on that. We, it was a great big group of young people until we had the follow-up after the program was over, and he walked in wearing a tuxedo because he was going to pick up his girlfriend to take her to a Mardi Gras ball. Now, my husband is six feet, six inches tall. He's, he is impressive in a tuxedo, ladies, let me tell you. <laughs> anyway, I thought, wow, i got to get to know this guy. <laughs> Anyway, as it turns out, he was already at Loyola. He was two years ahead of me. I uh, began going to Loyola and started trying to work my feminine wiles on him to, to get work my way into that um, man's heart so that he could notice me and not keep his eyes on that girlfriend he had. And by March of my... <laughs> That's terrible, huh? <laughs> anyway, and by March of my freshman year, he finally asked me out. And... Um, by, by my sophomore year at Loyola, we no longer dated other people, and we got married. I graduated in three and a half years, and we got married when I was 21. It, Lloyd, for me, has to be the person that the Lord, besides Father Bud and my parents and all these wonderful people that I've already told you about, Lloyd has been for me the, the image of the invisible God in my life. He is a man of total integrity. He came from a very poor, dysfunctional background and has made a tremendous, um, has just become a tremendous success as a man, as a person, and certainly one of the most wonderful husbands and fathers that there is on the face of the earth. So um, we have been married now these 34 years, almost 34 years, and I can only tell you that the grace, I think, the, the, the grace, I was thinking about this this morning, the grace that Lloyd and I have received uh, together in this journey of marriage has been, has been this. You know, our call in the sacrament of baptism is our initiation into the body of Christ. But our call, if, if God calls us to the sacrament of matrimony, it is his call to us to participate in one of the lifestyle sacraments of the church. Holy orders is the other lifestyle sacrament. And by that, I mean that matrimony, and for me, holy orders for our dear priests here, is the avenue of holiness and the way we are challenged to live out our baptismal call. 
It's not that I'm a baptized person who happens to be married. It's that I am initiated into the body of Christ as a baptized Catholic who expresses and lives out that baptismal commitment through the sacrament of matrimony. I'd like to share with you a couple of ways that the Lord has driven that message home to me. Um, There are two things you'll find out that I'm very passionate about. My faith, my Catholic faith, and my marriage. My marriage is one of the greatest passions that God has given me. Because I believe that those of us called to the sacrament of matrimony have a tremendous responsibility to show forth to the world what God's love for his people looks like. We've got to be modeling that. And that is a tremendous responsibility we bear. But there are enormous graces available to us to live that out. And I'm going to share with you a little story from my family of origin that helped catapult me onto that awareness. Um, My dad, when Lloyd and I got married, the day we got married and got to the hotel for our honeymoon, I opened up my suitcase and there was a letter from my mom and dad. In that letter, my dad said some, you know, wonderful things to me and Lloyd, but he said one piece of advice that we have cherished in our hearts. We've not always lived it, but we've paid the price if we didn't. And this is what dad said. From now on, your married life is all that matters. And if something's not good for both of you, it's not good for either of you. Now, how does that set flying in the face of be your own person, self-actualization, develop your own gifts, who cares if he doesn't go along with it? You know, you've got you've to lead the charge. You've got to prove yourself. I can only tell you that in almost 34 years of marriage, I have rebelled against that. I have rebelled against my husband and done things that I wanted to do because I wanted to do it for as long as I wanted to do it in the way that I want to do it, and our marriage suffered. But those moments of grace when I chose to do what the Lord was calling us both to do and what was good for both of us to do and what gave honor and glory for both of us to do for God also built up our sacramental life and has been responsible for us um, finding in this beautiful sacrament of matrimony the greatest happiness and intimacy this side of the kingdom of God. So I praise God for that. I praise him. I praise him. Another thing that I think Lloyd and I, uh, a decision that we made early on in our marriage was that um, we took our marriage very seriously and decided that if we were going to grow our marriage, if our marriage was going to be truly a reflection of God's love for the church, as St. Paul says in Ephesians 5, if we truly were going to model the relationship of enduring love that Jesus has for the church, then we were going to have to grow this marriage in a very intentional way. And so we made a commitment from the first year of our marriage that every year we would do something solely for the sake of growing our marriage. So over the course of these years, we have attended married couple retreats and well-marriage clinics and communication seminars and family life conferences and some things Catholic, some things Protestant. We have done a tremendous amount of things 
simply to grow our own marriages. My thinking was he's a CPA and every year he has to take some continuing education to be a better CPA. Attorneys do it, computer specialists do it, teachers do it, nurses do it, doctors do it. It seems to me that if we're going to grow into the reflection of God's love for the church that God calls husbands and wives to be, that we had to be as intentional in the growing of our marriage as anybody could be in the growing of their professional life, their ministry life, or anything else. And so we've taken that very seriously, and I think that's borne great fruit in our lives. And again, I can only say it's been a tremendous work of grace. I guess there's another thing I want to um, just share with you uh, um, that uh, I'd like another little story that I'd like to share with you um, that kind of gives you a flavor again of how deeply rooted this idea of performance, the performance mentality that I had was. Um, Several years ago, I was involved in a non-denominational Bible study with women called Bible Study Fellowship. And I don't know if any of you have ever heard of it, but um, I was invited to go and I was curious to see you know, I've learned a lot from studying the Bible with Protestants because they, they know a lot about the scriptures. And so I went. And this was one of those pivotal moments that the, the Lord did in my life. And I just want to share that with you and, and then go on. But the teaching leader that night, she made this extraordinary, I thought it was an extraordinary statement in her teaching. She said, righteousness based on performance is worthless. Righteousness based on performance is worth is worthless. Huh. I'm telling you, I can still feel it. It's like somebody socked me in the stomach. I think we as a society, and certainly in my life, have spent so much time performing and making sure that, you know, we are up to snuff and we can prove ourselves that to come into the spiritual life and recognize that we have no righteousness on our own, that all of our good deeds are as filthy rags as the scriptures say, and that our only righteousness is the righteousness given to us by Jesus Christ. Again, ladies, that is a spiritual journey that takes years to peel off those layers, that infects us even in our prayer lives. You know, how often... My spiritual director, about three or four years ago, started really encouraging me. Instead of taking my prayer time as another, you know, attack, okay, I'm going to read this scripture, and I'm going to journal this way, and I'm going to get this out of it, and I'm going to show forth how I've progressed. She said, I just want you for 30 minutes to sit and do nothing but sit in the Lord's presence. I don't know if, if that's the way all of you pray, but that is a hard discipline to just sit in the Lord's presence. Because you know why? For me, once I got up after 30 minutes, I had nothing to show for it. I couldn't tell you what I learned from it, great insights I got from it. I couldn't go preach about something I learned in the scriptures or anything else. All I could do was say, I sat there. I looked at him. He looked at me. Sometimes 30 minutes, 29 minutes of it was spent battling the distractions of my mind. And so I felt like it was totally fruitless. But, you know, I came across this great quote by Catherine of Siena. And she said that the fruit of our contemplation is in the life that we live. And that we are encouraged to go forth from our time of contemplation and courageously bear witness to the truth. 
So for me, even in my prayer, my prayer has had to come through that journey of purification so that it's not about producing. It's not about how many journals I can fill or how many prophetic words I can hear. It's simply about being in the Lord's presence and allowing the Lord to feel my love for him and for me to absorb his love for me. Let me just kind of move quickly on with some other parts of my journey. Lloyd uh, was transferred after five years of our marriage. We had two children at the time. I had children right away. We had two children at the time. He was transferred up to New York, worked in the New York office. It was while we lived in New Jersey that I took a Life in the Spirit seminar and was baptized in the Holy Spirit. That became a pivotal moment for me and for our marriage, and I'll tell you why. I started going to prayer meetings and uh, reading the scriptures voraciously and getting all on fire. My husband would stay home at night when I'd go to the prayer meeting and babysit for the kids. I came home one night, and I was so excited and couldn't wait to tell Lloyd all about it. And when I told him the whole story, he looked at me and he said, I feel like you're getting so far ahead of me that I'll never catch up. And for some reason, ladies, God gave me the grace, the grace of the sacrament of matrimony to say to him, then I will not go back to a prayer meeting until you're ready to come with me. Because I know this, that no prayer meeting, no spiritual growth is from the Lord if it's going to be divisive to me and you. Because what I know the Lord wants most of all is our unity as a couple. And so I didn't. I didn't go back until um, it was about six or eight months later that my husband found um, advertised in the church a Life in the Spirit on a Saturday when he could go. It was an all-day seminar because he couldn't do the things at night because of his work schedule. Um, It was a great grace of another pivotal moment in my life where the Lord had me choose the unity of the couple over any of my own individual pursuits. We moved to Charlotte, North Carolina after two years in New York. And we attended Crisio. My husband attended first, and two weeks later I went and made my Crisio. Again, a wonderful moment, a wonderful part of our journey, the Lord using those people and those experiences to deepen our sense of who he is. We moved back to New Orleans very unexpectedly. My mom was very ill at the time. Lloyd was offered a job back in New Orleans. He discerned that uh, we would come back there, and we made our marriage encounter. So we made the three big renewal movements in the church, the charismatic renewal, Crisio, and marriage encounter. And it was a tremendous gift to us and to our lives. Then, as you know, we continued to raise our children, um, it was after our Life in the Spirit seminar that we were, uh, again, blessed with our third child. We call her our spirit baby. Uh, I had our fourth daughter when we moved to New Orleans, and then the doctor told me I would have no more children. I was having female problems at the time, and uh, several months later, I was pregnant. (laughs) And when we went to the doctor, and he was the doctor who had given our pre-cana, actually, and he looked at me and said, what are you doing here? And my husband said to him, well, you know how you said we wouldn't have any more children? Well, if this is a boy, we're naming it Jack Andoni. That was his, his name, the doctor. Anyway, I was pregnant, and um, our last child was born because after that I had to have a hysterectomy. But um, Evan is our one that is, will be 19 this month, and he has been for me that last 
fruit of my womb that just um, was the Lord's free gratuitous gift and has been a tremendous blessing. My children have been a real avenue of holiness for me because there's nothing like raising children that wears away your innate sense of selfishness. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Those of you who have raised children. Uh, I'm watching it now through the eyes of my children as they raise grandchildren. Uh, as they raise my grandchildren, their own children, and they cannot believe that they don't get any sleep, that babies don't sleep on command and, you know, do what they want them to do, that, that they're constantly as. And, and this is the way that the Lord has, I believe, in my life, refined me and made me holy. It's largely through being a wife and mother. It is in the constant laying down of my life as wife and mother and in hearing God's call to me as a woman that I am asked to, to shed the many layers of selfishness, self-absorption, pride. There's nothing that will attack your pride like your children, right? Because have you noticed they don't all live like you think they should live? And, you know, they make their own choices. And I can remember uh, several years ago, the, the Jesuit priest both of my sons graduated from Jesuit high school and the priest who's the president said to us as he addressed the moms one day, he said, you know, you are not responsible for the stupid choices that your adult children make. And I thought, phew, thank God, you know? And I thought it was another call for me to uh, relinquish my hold on being general manager of the universe. I I think the Lord was saying to me again, you can let that role go and, and I'll take it over. And I know it's time for me to stop, but I do want to end with the scripture that I think um, sort of sums up everything that the Lord uh, is trying to teach me. There's ever so much more I could share with you about my life and ministry. Just leave you with this scripture, because to me, it's what the Lord has used to um, sort of put into words how I see my life in his hands. Again, remember, I I told you I'm just a very ordinary woman with an extraordinary God. And it's from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. I wasn't. But... God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And he chose the lowly things of this world, like me, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of God that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. And that is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. I pray that you will hear my testimony as my boast in the Lord, not in who I am, but who this incredible Savior is for each of us. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this Magnificat podcast. Have you been touched by our time together? If so, for more information or to find a Magnificat chapter near you, go to our website at magnificat-ministry.org. 
or visit us on social media. We would love to hear from you. You can also email us at magnificatcst at aol.com or call 504-828-MARY, M-A-R-Y. Until the next time, may God bless you.